In today's episode, we discuss the 2018 Olympics, overcoming personal setbacks, daily habits, overcoming injuries, the importance of passion, the modern life and its many troubles, and more. I really think you're going to enjoy today's episode with guest Wiley Maple. And if you've enjoyed the podcast so far, and if you enjoyed today's podcast, please hop on and leave us a quick review on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks again, and I hope you'll enjoy the show. Today's show is brought to you by IcePod, finally an affordable, portable, and effective way to get the benefits of cold water immersion in the comfort of your own home. I opted for the Pro Bundle, which includes the ice pod, a water circulating pump, a special insulated lid, and a thermometer to check the temp of your water. Even in Georgia, the ice pod keeps my water between 60 and 70 degrees, and when I load it up with a 36-pack of water bottles that I use and refreeze after each session, I can easily get it around 50 degrees for the perfect cold water immersion experience. Despite being light and portable, the ice pod is super durable and it's the perfect solution for anyone who wants to experience the benefits of cold water immersion without spending thousands of dollars for a home water chiller or trying to DIY your own. Cold immersion can help with recovery and muscle soreness, raise dopamine levels, help you wake up and be more alert, help you to burn more calories, mobilize brown fat, and more. Visit podcompany.com and use my special promo code SHANE. 50107 for $10 off your order, and each sale helps to support the show as well. Stay cool out there, people. Are you looking for the perfect high-protein snack that isn't loaded with stuff like MSG, nitrates, and sugar? Carnivore Snacks is the perfect high-protein snack made from quality grass-fed beef and salt. That's it. Each bag uses one pound of high-quality beef, lamb, pork, or chicken, salt, and nothing else. Aside from being easy, healthy, and convenient, they also taste great. These snacks are not just another jerky. They are way better. Give a bag a try, and I know you'll keep coming back. Check out Carnivore Snacks, spelled with an X, dot com, and enter coupon code SHANE05137 for 15% off your order, and each sale will help support the Renaissance Wisdom Podcast as well. Welcome to the Renaissance Wisdom Podcast, where ancient and modern wisdom come together to create a better way of living. I'm your host, Shane Sorensen, and each week we speak with successful people from a plethora of disciplines in search of wisdom from their own lives. Your own personal renaissance begins today. Let wisdom be your guide. Hey everybody, welcome to the Renaissance Wisdom Podcast. I'm your host, Shane Sorts, and I'm here with today's guest, Wiley Maple. Welcome to the show. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, picking your brain a little bit. Uh, I, I myself uh, kind of toot my own horn to say that I'm a bit of a Renaissance man, and it seems like you would do the same. So I, um, I always like to see people who are striving and you know, kind of pushing themselves to excel in multiple fields. So um, why don't you go ahead and start out just by uh, giving us a little bit about your, your background, um, you know, about, about your history, that kind of thing. Sounds good. Um, my name is Wiley Maple, as uh, has been said. Uh, I grew up in Aspen, Colorado, uh, third generation there. Um, 
pretty epic place to grow up, obviously. Um, and uh, when I was a kid, I knew I wanted to be a professional athlete by the age of like four and uh, kind of set my goals to try to get to that. And uh, through all my teenage years and, and youth, I played kind of every sport I possibly could and uh, eventually settled on skiing and uh, ski racing. And that took me uh, around the world, racing on the World Cup level, uh, racing for the national team sometimes, and eventually to the Olympics. And uh, yeah, that's some of my background. Awesome. So <clears throat> you you say in your background, like, you just decided you wanted to be a professional athlete? Or did you like, did you have a different goal in mind when you were much younger? Or you're just like, no, nah, I want to be like a pro athlete in general? Well, I'd say like when I was really young, I wanted to be a superhero, uh, like a lot of little kids. And yeah. uh, look, looking around the world, there didn't they didn't seem to exist actually. Um, and then I remember like watching, I think the '98 or '96 Olympics, and being like, well, "That's about as close as it gets." Um, so I mean, yeah, literally, some of my first memories are, I want to do that. Awesome. Okay, and um. Tell tell us a little bit about uh what you're working on now. I, I was reading a little bit. It looks like you're uh you're kind of you've been kind of making a recovery run and stuff, right? You're getting getting back into the game, so to speak. I have been. Uh, yeah, I uh, was forced to retire in 2019 uh, for spinal fusion, and uh, they kind of told me that was the end of my competitive racing career, and uh, so I believed them and. Uh, hungered down, finished college. Uh, I graduated with a degree in philosophy and studio art and uh, just kind of tried to ski every day and eventually started skiing really hard again. Um, I actually got all the hardware taken out of my back last December and uh, was doing some teaching and some, you know, like pro racing of various kinds um, and just kind of felt like my body was working pretty well. <laughs> And uh, I watched a 42-year-old win an Olympic silver medal from France in the downhill, which is one of my events. And I was like, what am I doing with my life? I, uh, yeah, I basically yeah. just hated most of the job opportunities that were available. And it just seemed soul-crushing. And I was like, um, it seems like, you know, I have a window. So see if it can work. So back, back trying to make my way to back up to that world cup Olympic level. For sure. I, I'm sure we're like, I, I'm really excited to talk about that. I, I don't know if you know much about my background, but I, I was a really competitive jujitsu guy for, for many years. Um, I'm a BJJ black belt now. Um, I was competing at kind of like <clears throat> what you would say, I guess it's kind of like the amateurish level. Like I was a purple belt when I was really heavy into competition and I was doing like the world championships and a lot of big tournaments and, I have a really deep appreciation that most people would probably not be able to relate to you on of what it takes to get to a very high level at something like that. It's like there are levels within levels and it, it's such a mental game and it's so crazy because you're competing against everybody else, but you're also competing against like all the voices in your head and Man, it, it's not like business where you can go into business and like everyone can kind of make some money and be successful if you if you work hard. It's like in in sports and athletics, 
you can like destroy yourself, like work yourself to the, to the bone and you can still like not quite be into that kind of upper echelon of, you know, the, the, the top podium guys. And it's, uh, man, I don't know. It's, it's a crazy thing. It really is like a, I guess a, a lot of a, a mental and internal battle sometimes. And, um, hearing you coming back from the injuries and just like getting into it, I'm, I'm rooting for you, man. I, I love, I love a story like that. So. Yeah, thanks. Hopefully, uh, I mean, I'd like it to actually come together. I feel like, uh, you know, big reason I wanted to come back is because uh, I like it. Um, it's fun. Um, but I also feel like I never reached my potential and, uh, yeah. And that is like, uh, you know, a weight that, uh, I'd like to, you know, explore, I guess. For sure. Yeah, ski racing, ski racing, as like kind of you were saying in jujitsu is, I mean, it's just, uh, one of the craziest sports in the world. It's, uh, you know, there's so many, it's, it's basically formula one with humans and sticks basically. So it's, you know, there's like, you're tuning your body as best as you can to race for fractions of a second. And, uh, you know, you're racing outdoors. So it's, uh, you know, the weather does play a huge factor and how fast you can go. And an injury is a huge part of, you know, the sport so it's uh yeah the mental game we usually say a lot of us talk about how like once you get to the world cup level it's you know 80 percent mental and then like 20 percent luck <laughs> yeah there's definitely like an elephant or an elephant <laughs> an element of luck in it like where you have to do the preparation you have to work really hard but sometimes sometimes it's tough as an athlete because you can do all the work, you can feel ready for everything. And you just, you know, you, you go in, you have a bad bracket, you know, you just, you wake up and you have a terrible night's sleep that night and it just, it throws your game off. It's like, you know, and there, there's like the saying in jujitsu or like you see it in fighting a lot is it's, it's like he was the champ that day, you know, it, and it, that's one of the worst things I guess at that level is when you see somebody else ahead of you and you just know that on a, on your best day, you should have been ahead, right? Like you just, you know that you didn't live up to what you know that you can do. Um, it, it didn't really bother me as much if I just go out there and some guy just destroys me and and taps me out and chokes me unconscious in a minute because I'm just like, man, he was the better guy. Um, it's it's those matches that you lose by a little bit or you just feel like you made one little mistake and that's that's where you lost the whole thing. So um, t tell me a little bit about like, I mean, I know you you've had... And, you know, the spinal thing, I know that you had, like, I read about, like, you had some major knee injuries and stuff, too. Um, you know, injuries are obviously debilitating because it's, like, you can never get that time back. It takes you out. You have to spend a lot of time just kind of getting back to the level that you were at as far as your, your peak physical performance and timing and everything else that goes into it. You know, like, especially coming back from retirement, you know, what, what tips do you have for people? Like, you know, whether you're an athlete or whether you're just kind of dealing with like some sort of setback in life, like what, what's your formula for overcoming those, those roadblocks going forward? I mean, I'd say like a, a huge part of it is uh, just my passion for sport. So that seems kind of like inborn, not necessarily a choice that kind of motivates me to, return to a life that I enjoy. Um, and 
injury is something that I fucking hate. So, uh, yeah. you know, it's kind of like a mandatory recovery. Like I have to get back to, you know, a lifestyle and a life that I want to lead. Um, you know, I've had, uh, 22 surgeries now, which is pretty insane. I'm only 32. Um, <laughs> that's rough. That's a lot. A lot of them, uh, yeah, it's interesting. If uh, actually my first uh, real skiing injury was last year when I was thinking about coming back to racing, I blew uh, my ACL, MCL, meniscus. And uh, if I had been getting hurt at the frequency that I was uh, and ski racing was clearly the problem, I would have stopped, you know, at like 22 years old. Uh, but uh, most of the problem was me and uh, a lot of overtraining and uh, just kind of debauchery so i couldn't like blame ski racing and so that's kind of kept me moving back to it but uh yeah some tips are uh find a good doctor always find try to find the best doctor you possibly can and the best pt you possibly can those are you know the two most important things you can do in injury and then you know when you're hurt you know you have to keep moving and <clears throat> you can't move um for a lot of it so you have to try to you know expand your brain as much as you can um painting and and reading and writing have been a huge part of getting me through injury um you know while you're in isolation and you know stuck stuck on a couch you can still kind of go places with those things um you know even uh you know movies and shows and and uh video games have all been pretty helpful they kind of let you live vicariously and uh you know create more experiences and and while you're not really able to create experience, but, uh, another key is I found meditation to be very helpful. Um, exercise has always been a meditation for me. Um, and I didn't realize how important it was for my well-being uh, mentally until yeah. you get taken away from you. Um, and like how quickly you can drop into, you know, some terrible places. So, uh, meditation I've found to, you know, be very helpful, keeping you, um, you know, in a way exercising. Um, and then what else, uh, one step at a time, you know, you yeah. first learn to walk, then learn to run and, you know, be thankful for being able to walk again and being able to put on your shoes by yourself and try to enjoy some good food and good friends and good company along the way for sure it, that's all i mean all great advice i i really like the idea that you you said kind of right at the beginning which is just the just keep moving which you know all the things that you listed are just essentially they're they're ways that you just keep moving instead of just allowing the weight of what you're going through to just completely crush you and destroy you and rip your soul out it's just about keeping and going like you know it's it's so easy i guess when we focus on our current situation to become overwhelmed or and it's like even if we're in a good situation it's very easy to just get so fixated on the negative and a lot of that fixation on the negative comes from just being stagnant just just being still just feeling what it feels like or <clears throat> you know being in that moment as opposed to you know making progress um and I, I think that, you know, obviously you're, you listed a lot of creative things. So you're, you're getting that like creative outlet somewhere, um, which 
I talk a lot about in my book that I, I think that that does a very crucial part of well-being for human beings is that we're constantly reaching toward, you know, eudaimonia. We're, we're constantly trying to flourish and blossom as human beings because when you get stagnant um, and you, you stop making a progress, I feel like that's where a lot of those feelings of like depression and everything comes in. Right. And that I'm sure that the, the same thing kind of happens as an athlete as well. When you feel like you're not making progress, you, you tend to get very stuck. So um, I, I love that. Just, just keep moving and, and step by step kind of makes me think of uh, Roger Bannister a little bit. I don't know if you're, yeah. you know, super familiar with his, but you know, after he broke the, the mile record they're they're like, how'd you do it? And he's like, I just knew that if I took one more step at that pace, that I could break the four minute barrier. You know, he's like, I didn't, I didn't focus about what was going to happen two minutes from now. I just, you know, I just knew if I took one more step, one more step, one more step, I would get there. Um, I, I like, I like the mindset for sure. Uh, tell me a little bit about, so I, I did some reading on you, you know, I, I saw in 2018, obviously I know you went to the Olympics and it was, you, you were like, uh, I guess you were kind of like an alternate or you, you it mentioned that you had to kind of like pay your own way on the team. Like you weren't officially part of the team, but you competed. Like, just tell me a little bit about that. And then also tell me just about, I mean, the, the whole experience, because obviously just, just being at the Olympics, I, I mean, that, that is an absolute amazing, amazing achievement. Right. So tell, just tell us a little bit about it in general. Yeah, that was uh, like the craziest two years-ish of my life. Um, I had really severe patella tendonitis problems um, starting at like 18. And basically like every time they looked at it, they were like, it's about to snap. We have to do surgery. And it just was incredibly painful like day in, day out as well. Um, mm -hmm. So 2016, I had a, an experimental surgery. And basically the only people that I talked to who had gotten over like really gnarly patella tendonitis actually snapped their patella and, and then it healed and like they never bothered them again. So I told the doctor to just cut it in half in the, in the operating room. And uh, that recovery was like the worst ever. I uh, it took me a year, year and a half to get back from that. And um, you know, I was in the pit of despair, thought I'd never ski again, thought I'd never walk again. And, uh, you know, gave up on, on ski, on, uh, racing competitively, uh, more or less, but I knew I, you know, I had to get some form of my life back, um, and was able to, you know, heal eventually. And right. Um, when I started feeling like I was healing on my knee, I was, you know, training a little bit harder and then my back went out. So I had a back surgery as well. And, uh, the U S ski team had promised to rename me to the ski team, um, following my injury and they, uh, didn't. Um, so that made everything a lot harder and more expensive. Um, yeah. Yeah, I kind of like went through the summer, um, you know, just kind of enjoying one of the few summers uh, on a bike and starting to feel healthy again. And uh, my coaches have always been, um, you know, on my side and and know what I'm capable of. It's kind of like the higher ups that make a lot of these decisions to axe athletes. 
Um, and they kind of went behind their back ish and were like, Hey, you want to come to Chile and see if you can still ski? And, uh, I said, okay, okay maybe. Um, and I actually went to Mammoth, California. Uh, this was like in July, we were planning to go to Chile and, um, like right after that. So I was like, I should at least see if I can ski before I bring a ton of skis down and commit to like a month long training camp. And, uh, yeah, just dropped in from the very top of Mammoth, hadn't skied in a year and a half and, uh, you know, thought I was getting pretty good on a bike and skateboarding and running and all this stuff. And like, did like two moguls and then just like instinctively popped like three of them and was just like, wow, I am just wildly better at skiing than I am at most things. So went to Chile and, uh. Yeah, I had to pay for all that. I had to pay for my trip down there and all the training and lodging and flights. And uh, and then, uh, you know, started training, like lifting and stuff again heavily. Um, but uh, I generally just always try to stay in shape uh, just because I feel better and my brain works better, I think. Um, so I wasn't like that far yeah. back. And then had to fundraise for the Olympic season or, or just the season, just the World Cup season. So um season costs anywhere from 70000 to $100,000, depending on how wrong it goes. And it can be, you can get a lot cheaper the faster you go. Um, as soon as you break into the top 30 people in World Cup events, then you start getting paid. Um, so uh, if you go fast enough, you, you can make your season a lot cheaper. And, you know, obviously some of the best guys in the world are making millions. So there's a crazy disparity between right. the first guy and the 60th guy. Um, but yeah, as when I entered the season, I, uh, was getting my ass totally kicked and, uh, I, you know, I had the dreams of obviously it was Olympic season, so everybody gets more excited and, uh, you know, that was the dream for most of my life. So, um, coming into that, uh, the first couple of races just didn't go well, it's just getting terribly slow and, uh, about like mid December. I was like, man, I just don't have it anymore. And uh, kind of like, was like, well, if this is the last year on the World Cup circuit, you know, you're stopping at all these amazing places around the world and getting to ski a course that, you know, nobody gets to ski. So try to enjoy yourself. And the next day I was second in a training run. <laughs> and uh, yeah. I, was, I was like, what the hell is um, my first comment was like to myself internally, you know, like just when you think life is total tragedy, uh, you realize it's a comedy and, uh, yeah. From on out, I skied fast and was named to the Olympic team and, uh, went to Korea. Um, kinda, yeah, it was a huge deal for me. Um, and, uh, yeah, for sure. Like stepping out and opening ceremonies, that was, that was pretty special. Um, and just like seeing excitement around, um, like the town that I grew up in and all my friends and people who loosely knew me and all that stuff was, was pretty cool. Um, the Olympics itself, like shortly after that, like shock and awe was, uh, pretty underwhelming. Um, you know, the Greeks competed in the Olympics back in the, in the day and they competed naked. And, you know, that is the essence of the Olympics now, but it's kind of a facade or it's a total facade. You know, we, we 
we wear, no sponsors. Um, but you know, all these sponsors are basically forced on us that didn't have anything to do with us getting there, you know, like Ralph Lauren and McDonald's and Coca-Cola and Nike. Yeah. And it's like, I've never worn any of these products before in my life. And now I'm, I have to wear them the whole time I'm at the Olympics. Um, and I just thought that was you know pretty obnoxious. Um, yeah, I couldn't, you know, your Instagram gets kind of like locked for the month of the Olympics. So, you know, this platform that I created more or less, um, I can't, you know, mention the real sponsors that got me there, like the people, you know, from my hometown and, and, uh, you know, my, my equipment sponsors, unless they bought into the Olympic, uh, you know, venue basically. Right. But overall it was, I mean, it was huge to race Olympics and, you know, I can, that's something they can't take away from me ever. For sure. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately the, uh, the, like the corporatism has kind of uh, infiltrated everything at this point. Yeah. It, it's uh, and it, it, it is tough for, for athletes too. I know like a lot of times, you know, they like the UFC, for example, I know they came in and they took away, you know, people being able to have individual sponsors and they, they give everybody these like Reebok, you know, the, the Reebok gear and everything now too. Um, it's, uh, I mean, I guess like one of the things with the Olympics too, is it's, it's interesting to it because it's, uh, it's amateur considered, right? Like it's cause it's not paid. I mean, obviously I'm not saying that people that are there are amateurs that that's not at all what I'm saying, but like in the sports world, like no one's getting paid. Like you can go get the, the gold medal at the Olympics and it's not like you're, you're getting any kind of payment for it or anything like that. Right. I mean, you're going to get sponsorships yeah. from it. It's. No, you'll if you make you win a Olympic gold, you'll make a hundred thousand to a million dollars like that day. Yeah. Um, you know, all of our all of the contracts that you know, sure like my ski contracts, my goggle contract, you know, sure. those have Olympic criteria. Um, you know, it it's been a while since the Olympics was actually amateur. Um I don't know when they stopped that, like the eighties or something. Like right okay. pre Fontaine like bitched about it for a while. Uh rightfully so. I mean, imagining what amateur Olympic athletes had to do back then is basically what I did have to do. Um, you know, I right. had to pay for everything and, you know, figure out how to train and get to that Olympic level when all of my opposition is, you know, bankrolled by, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah. Yeah, because they've got they've got sponsors behind them. They've got like national teams behind them. They've got yeah, you know, there's there's money flowing in everywhere, like Olympic Training Center and all that. They've got nutritionists and training programs and yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, all huge huge pieces of the puzzle, and that uh, in my opinion, it's uh, just like you know a huge failure of our national governing body that. I was able to go to the Olympics without like their support. Like that shouldn't have happened. Like I shouldn't have had to do that to yeah. be like an athlete at that level and not supported was kind of in some ways like a waste of everybody's time. Like, I mean, I, I made it happen, but I was, you know, I was starting here and everybody was already here and sure. it was like, how about you let me start here so that I can actually compete yeah, I, I mean, 
I know what you were talking about, like, and I guess we're, we're getting into like the, like, like the grimy underside of, uh, you know, Olympic sports a little bit, but it, it kind of like when you talked about, uh, there's like these upper, upper level executives that kind of make the decisions sometime as far as, you know, who gets the money, who gets the ride or, um, it kind of made me think of that movie Moneyball. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen it or not, but it, it kind of makes me think of that where it's just like, you know, it's like, there's, all, there's just this club. And they're like, nah, 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 you know, like he's, he's not part of the club. Like, don't, you know, don't, I don't like him. I don't, don't like, or, or I do like him, you know, he's got a good pitch, but you know, when somebody actually comes in and breaks it down to statistics and kind of starts looking at um, some of the things that maybe they missed because they weren't even really involved in the sport themselves. It, it was interesting to see that, but also there's uh there's an intangible in athletics that it's like, you know, there's no way someone sitting in a, in a, suit in a boardroom that you know maybe has never even done a sport like you just can't quantify heart like that there's so many people that in sports throughout the years i mean you can't even name them all that have done these huge upsets or just done things that seem seemingly should have been impossible because there's just this there's just this like special part of the human spirit that sometimes people can just tap into and they can do shit that nobody ever could have seen coming. Um, that I, I, I would love to, I would love to hear that, that that happens for you, my friend. Um, that Me too. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I've kind of lived like that, you know, just slave to my passions. Uh, and, uh, it's allowed me to do, you know, impossible lot and even actually coming back, into racing this season was right. three three years off. Told me I'd never, you know, I'd never race again. I could probably shouldn't run again. And uh, yeah, it was pretty cool to come out and actually um, be pretty competitive. Um, so I, I was able to start a World Cup training run in Aspen. They had a World Cup there for the first time in a long time. Um, so that was a huge driving factor at the Compaq. Um, and, uh, I went from 61st to 17th and was, you know, beat half the US ski team and awesome. You know, kind of did the impossible. So that was cool, but I'd like to do, you know, a lot more and it'd, it'd be nice to make a living doing what I love. For sure. I, w I wanted to ask you too, with like, with injuries, are injuries just super common in, in your event and skiing, or is it, are you just like exceptionally unlucky? as far as like uh, the injuries have gone <clears throat> both uh okay. i mean pretty much everybody who's a ski racer will in some format broke break their back and blow a knee um in their career unless they're like exceedingly lucky right um so it's more common than not common for me to have as many injuries as i have had um was and pretty much none of them were on a race course. Um, was uh, actually found out I was on bipolar uh, last last year. Um, so I've had like huge depression swings throughout my life, and then basically, you know, I've had you know this driving force of you know trying to be a professional, and I just was never able to stop and rest. Um, and you know, all my knee injuries, like all the patella stuff all the back stuff um, can basically be, in my mind, be directly correlated to um, just overtraining to like huge right. degrees. Um, 
and not knowing and not being able to rest properly. Like, you know, I, I'd never understood like my teammates would do their run and, you know, do their recovery. And then they'd get in bed at nine thirty or 10 and go to bed. And I, you know, when I go out and, you know, in summer training and you're skiing for, you know, like three hours a day and, and stuff like that, then I'm tired. But when you're actually racing at that super high level, your run is really only two minutes. Um, so it's just like massively explosive and it's a huge mental and physical strain, but it also still feels more or less like two minutes. Um, right. But the degradation on your body is like extensive just to do the turns, you know, we're pulling like five to 10 G's. So it's like thousands of pounds of pressure. Um, and I get back and I do my recovery and then I would, go on a run again too, or I'd go play hockey with the coaches and, you know, some nights I'd go party and, uh, right. basically just, you know, destroyed myself over time. And I'm guessing that's something that's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm 33 coming on 34 and obviously like I, I can still, you know, I can still handle myself. I still recover, but it's definitely like, it's starting to be where I can tell a little bit of a difference as far as just, you know, I don't bounce back quite as quick. I'm a little bit more sore. Sometimes I don't sleep as well. Um, so I, I imagine that that's probably something you've already addressed as far as, you know, part of your kind of uh, your return and your your comeback, right, is you have to get that stuff under control. Totally, yeah. So now I uh, just, like, focus a lot more on um, resting. Um, that's a huge part of it. Um, so, like, I try to like know that I have to try to go to sleep by 10 or something and, and, you know, do all the things before bed that actually make me tired before that. And then, uh, a huge, huge help has been this little whoop thing, um, that actually tells me how much strain I'm taking on in the day and how badly I'm sleeping. Um, okay. so like I actually got it, uh, one of these like two or three years ago. And, uh, I would basically every day would say I was at max strain and that i slept horribly and i was like this thing is fucking bullshit i feel fine <laughs> yeah <laughs> and uh now that i've been you know diagnosed that's like oh that was probably telling the truth the whole time and uh so now i you know i don't think it's that accurate but it gives me like at least a gauge to know like how much load i'm actually putting on my body um because a lot of the time it doesn't feel like it mentally yeah Tell, tell me a little bit about too. I know that you mentioned, um, which I, I just learned right when we were talking. Um, I, you told me you were a philosophy major too. So um, t tell me a little bit about you know your exposure to philosophy and maybe like how that's you know how that's built into your mindset, your the way that you analyze life, you know, athletics. Yeah, I, I mean uh, philosophy has been, you know, one of the, perhaps the, the drivingest force in my life, um, besides obviously athletics, but I feel like they go hand in hand, you know, philosophy is like kind of the base of all, all life and ideas. I think that's how I think about it. Yeah. Um, early when I was super young, um, I had like a, a nanny, my great grandmother died and like, I was, I don't know, like four or five and, uh, like being like asking my parents like what does that mean and they're like oh she's she's gone 
I'm like, for how long? They're like, you know, forever. And I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> this game, this game is that hardcore. Um, so that like kind of sent me reeling. And I remember, uh, you know, I had a nanny that took me to church uh, sometimes, and I just could not get behind those stories. Um, you know, they just seemed like a radical interpretation of reality that didn't coincide with reality. Um, so basically throughout my life, I've always loved books and, uh, and, you know, and had drives to answer the biggest questions in life, you know, how to, how to live a good life, um, how to, you know, proceed, you know, I guess honorably or whatever, or or just how to make yourself happy and, and live a good life. And, uh, I don't know, by the time I was. You know, in high school, I was reading a lot of philosophy and it kind of like filled the, filled the breach, um, in that. And, you know, as, you know, mentioning being, uh, bipolar now, that, I mean, I just see that as really a behavioral, uh, reference point, basically, um, that is actually helpful now. But, you know, I was experienced some like really gnarly depressions and, and trying to like find my way out of those, uh, require a lot of, reading um you know a lot of psychology and philosophy to like just even know what's going on and how to get out of those holes um and uh yeah i went to my i was pretty certain i wanted to be a philosophy psychology major um i had always loved art uh kind of almost as much as anything or more than anything but i hated you know the way that i saw the art world working um yeah so i didn't want to you know, become a part of a culture that paints a canvas red and sells it for a million dollars. I was like, what is that? Um, so I set out philosophy, psychology, and then wanted to take as much art as I possibly could. And, uh, it just came down to the wire. I ended up having taken more art than psychology classes. Um, but yeah, I remember the first, first philosophy class I had in college, uh, was, (laughs) basically a, a morals class um you know why we do the things that we do and you know day one i was like this is it i'm into this i'm a philosophy major for sure and uh it's you know just played a huge huge role in my life any um any favorite philosophers like you know a handful yeah uh aristotle's my favorite for sure okay. um i love uh nietzsche hume um and, you know, the, the more that I read fiction um, and get into, you know, a lot of that, there's so much philosophy in some of these fiction writers as well. Um, you know, like even J.K. Rowling in Harry Potter books, I grew up with those. That was a huge part of, I think, why I got into philosophy. Um, she studied Greek mythology, I believe. Um, so, and her ethics are Aristotelian ethics throughout all of her books. So they're you know, the choices we make and the actions we take. And um, I think that, like, in the first book was called The Philosopher's Stone. And I think that kind of played mm-hmm. a huge role in introducing me to philosophy. Um, and then, you know, just the more that I read, the, the more, like, you know, great philosophical advice some fiction writers provide. For sure. Um, I, I've been getting into uh, fiction a little bit again uh, more recently, too. For, for many years, I pretty much just read exclusively philosophy and um, I've been 
branching out a little bit more, getting into some of the classics. Like I'm working on uh, The Sun Also Rises by Hemingway right now. So <clears throat> it is, um, especially once you kind of have the, I guess the foundation of you know, just the basic understanding of philosophy, even if it's not super deep, even if you just kind of understand some of those philosophical ideas, you, you start to see it everywhere. Um, and yeah. obviously philosophy, you know, all the way back to the Greek etymology is just the love of wisdom. So, I mean, in, in a practical sense, it's like most of us love wisdom it, it, to some degree. I mean, like some people I think pursue maybe uh, the wrong wisdom. Like they're, they're just, <laughs> they're, they're trying to cope with life or they're just only seeking money and they're, they're looking for ways to just get more superficial, I guess, sort of things, as opposed to like looking for like a deeper understanding of self or maybe questioning, you know, morals in a way that might cause you to end up being a better person. But, uh, we, we can't really live without philosophy. That that's the thing that I always go back to is that even those who just think that philosophy is this like really boring thing. It's just a bunch of like 90 year old, like white dudes with beards, like debating, you know, about Hume and Kant and, and which one was the better philosopher. Like, even though, you know, that, that can be a thing where you just have these like purely academic philosophers, it, it also can be incredibly, incredibly practical. And even if you're not studied, like I said, it, it's, it's everywhere. Everyone, when they look out at the world, when they, when they, face a challenge when they get injured, you know, when they're out on the ski course and they blow their knee out, you, you either, you, you talk to yourself about the experience and that the way that you talk to yourself is your philosophy. It's the, it's the set of views that you've formed. And, um, I've always just kind of thought like, if, if you're going to have this inner talk, uh, it, it would make sense to kind of create an inner talk or an inner framework that is beneficial and helpful to you as opposed to one that is harmful. Um, and I think that's, that's a big part of why I got into philosophy in the beginning and it such a rabbit hole. You can, you can go down forever. Um, I, even though I'm really into the ancient philosophers, uh, Nietzsche is actually my favorite as well. So I, I, I love Nietzsche. Uh, <clears throat> I think most people are probably not, ready for, for Nietzsche. Like I don't think they can really like process the depth and like go to the pit of despair and come out on the other end and kind of like survive. But, uh, I, I have a huge appreciation well, for what's that. He, uh, yeah, he's extraordinary. I think, I mean, the way that he, I mean, he preaches like the, you know, the most terrible, you know, things that we can imagine and the, the greatest things we can imagine. Um, sure. And he does it, you know, in a depth and quality that is, you know, extraordinary because he has, in my opinion, he has such good writing style mixed with comedy and irony that very few other philosophers even come close to like, you know, like reading Kant or, you know, even Hume, you know, with tons of these guys like Plato, you're just like dragging through stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> entertain you like the amount that i find myself like laughing reading nietzsche and and just like you know collecting a quote is so often and uh and i think aristotle was you know obviously a lot more long-winded than than him but uh you know he he at least broke it down in really interesting ways and i think that just his interest in so many fields of study allowed him to 
you know, bring it all together in a really cool way. Um, and, you know, at its base, I think philosophy is, you know, the first science, basically, you know, it inspired, you know, most of the most potent scientific ideas, like, you know, that the earth was round, that, you know, there's, you know, geometry and things and, and all these things came from those ancient philosophers. And, uh, you know, basically even, uh, you know, Socrates' Socratic method is pretty dang close to uh, sure. you know, scientific method, scientific method. Yeah. Have you, uh, you ever gotten into the Stoics much or are you not, not really into Stoicism? It's kind of a pop culture thing at this point. I'd like, it is now for sure. No, uh, yeah. Marcus Aurelius, uh, I read meditations like every couple of years. Yeah. Um, you know, he's like the best. Uh, so I, I think that I read, uh, meditations when I was in high school and I was like, I'm going to be a stoic. That's what I am. And, uh, but I'm, I'm just me. I've created my own philosophy, you know, discarding, you know, plenty of stoic ideas while collecting ones that made sense <laughs> to me and seem beneficial and, you know, same with, you know, Aristotelian stuff and, you know, I, you know, we're all our own, you know, people, I think. And I think that following a creed, you know, kind of blindly, yeah. uh, just because somebody said it was good is, is generally bad. And, you know, like it seems pretty clear that everybody's different, um, you know, and uh, we respond differently to certain things and uh, you have to figure out a way that works for you. Um, you know, like Pythagoras is a classic example that like was cultish and, and, uh, you know, basically it was like, never eat these, always eat this. And it's like, yeah, I mean, that worked for you, it seems, but like, you know, some people are allergic to peanuts, <laughs> you know? Sure. It's like, oh, only eat peanuts. And it's like, oh, well, I, I die if I have those or I get hives, you know, it's like, you know, there's not one formula. Yeah. That, that's like, that's the thing that I appreciate the most about Nietzsche is like how anti-dogmatic he is in, in his beliefs and, and just in his philosophy is that it's like, it's sort of like the anti-dogma philosophy. If I, I don't know, it's hard to even classify or quantify Nietzsche's philosophy, but, um, you know, I, I feel like he does a really good job of kind of what, what he talks about, you know, like philosophy with the hammer. Um, he just, he kind of goes in and just shakes things up and, and breaks it apart and, uh, leaves you sort of a new place to stand on. I know he was very critical of like the, the Stoics be because of kind of their, their dogma that's wrapped up in their philosophy. But, um, I agree, you know, like it, it doesn't just because I'm very, very into Nietzsche's philosophy, it doesn't, doesn't stop me from taking out bits and pieces of practical use from stoicism because I, I think there is a lot of value there like you said you know marcus aurelius and epictetus and seneca there there's so much so much practical wisdom in, in their in their writing yeah totally i mean nietzsche is famous for uh saying socrates reasoned himself to death um so you know he was you know very critical of everything and i think that that is a huge part of philosophy is you know question everything and uh you know at its base critical thinking why do you believe what you are believing and what is it doing? Yeah. You know, something that strikes me, uh, I don't know that this is like my brain just kind of putting this together. Um, and, and I actually, I can relate to this, so I'm not, I'm not picking on you, but I, I see that there is a kind of like a part of you that I guess is a little bit, uh, 
I don't know, like a rebellious spirit. It, it seems like you dislike the like the establishment. You dislike the the gatekeepers. You know, you dislike the 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 men in dark suits that kind of like determine the way that the world works. And you know, so to speak, whether it's uh, athletics or academia, because um, I, I I feel that too, man. I just I look at so many things the way they are, and I you know it was the same thing like when I wrote my book, like it's just such a, it's like a club to be an author, you know? And it, it's, it's like, it's not about talent. It's not about anything. It's just about like knowing someone and being part of the club sometimes. Uh, cause th there's so many good writers that just never, never really even have a chance to be heard. Right. Cause they're just, they're not part of the club. Like how many, how many athletes are there out there that, you know, could have been amazing athletes or, you know, could have done so much more, but they just weren't part of the club or, I, I don't know. I, I guess that's the, uh, that's what got Socrates killed sort of. So. Yeah, totally. I mean, that was, uh, you know, what got a lot of those philosophers killed in that time. They were, you know, heretics basically. And, right. uh, and they asked questions and believed in alternative. And, uh, yeah, I've, I've definitely been, uh, for sure. Uh, rebel, sometimes rebel without a cause. Um, yeah. and you know, a lot of the way that I see, <laughs> humanity leading out their lives, I think is you know, almost completely broken, especially as we're yeah. breaching into climate crisis and kind of changing nothing. And just the way that, you know, everybody lives their lives on like just a day-to-day -day basis of like enjoyment and companionship and, and, you know, meaning, I guess. Um, like, I think that we need to seriously reimagine how we're doing things and, and figure out new ways to live. You know, I think that there's so many rules, you know, I have tons of rules that I've made for myself, um, to enhance my life, um, that are good for me. Um, but you know, there's plenty of rules that we just put in place that don't do what they were intended to do, but they're still part of our structure. And we go through them every day, not knowing why the hell we're doing it. And it's, you know, wasting everybody's time and in a lot of ways, just, you know, degrading the quality of life. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's everywhere. It's everywhere you look. I mean, we're, <clears throat> that's, uh, that's one of my, you know, I guess that's kind of like the passion or the idea behind the, the podcast, the book that I've done, the pages that I run is I, I just, I think that, uh, we we've been sold a bill of goods and I, you know, it's not like I think that it's necessarily a conspiracy, but I just, that the way that things have evolved, um, we we've been sold this idea of what we need and, uh, what we need to accumulate in order to be successful individuals and happy individuals. And I think the further that we continue to go down this road, the further we get away from actually being content and happy individuals. And it's, it's really crazy uh, philosophically when I, I think about sometimes how it's like, you know, like would, would we just be better off or just like happier if we were just like living in tents, you know, and just like people just really didn't have stuff and we were just, we were just hunting or like, you know, growing wheat for ourselves, for our little tribes. Uh, you know, I, it, it's just, it's so tough, right? Cause you look at how much technology is done and how much it's benefited humanity, but it, it's almost like this, uh, like this parasite. So it's like this, uh, 
not even symbiotic, but like this parasitic relationship where it kind of slowly consumes us from the inside. Yeah, it's just a double-edged sword, really. But yeah, I think about that a lot. I mean, um, you know, one of the, one depression I was in uh, like a year or two ago, I was like deep in it. Like uh, it was, it was really shocking um, how gnarly it was uh, because most of them coincided with injury. Um, so it was like, you know, losing my sport and my objective and then just actually, you know, not being able to do a lot of things that I love to do. And then the depression would, you know, kick in. And this time I was very healthy. Um, and just like, didn't really understand why I was in the place that I was. Um, but I actually read a lot about, you know, hunter gatherer societies that are still present and they, don't understand suicide. They don't know what you're talking about when they talk about depression. Um, you know, they're living yeah. in a way that is in harmony in some way. Um, and yeah, it's really interesting. And I think that a lot of that has to do with, you know, purpose and meaning, you know, they go get some water and they get exercise, getting water and they fulfill the, the objective of getting water. They enjoy the water and like same thing with food. So like, you know, they're doing everything for a reason and for a meaning and they get instantly rewarded. And then they're also all living together, you know, all the time, um, you know, living with their friends, you know, so much of the way that our society is, is moving is everybody goes into their own castle and, you know, builds their own nuclear family. And then, you know, we're doing our jobs, our passions, whatever they are. A lot of the time, you know, if, if they're our passion, we're doing them for their own sake a lot of the time. Um, but if it's a job, we're doing it for money and, and the money is used for food and shelter. And that little separation breach, I think is what has detached us from, you know, reality in a, in a strange way. But ultimately I think that we can't go back, um, right. Yeah. We'll go forward. Um, and technology used correctly is an amazing, amazing tool. And hopefully we'll bring us all back into, you know, if we get our shit together, it'll bring us all back into a state where we, you know, hopefully our technologies will rely on the planet and put us back into like, you know, harmony with the ecosystem and, and, and each other and allow us to, you know, live in a way that we can follow passions like indefinitely basically and be with friends, you know, we kind of get life on lock sufficiently enough to go back in a way to how we once lived, but in sure. a modern way. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with too, um, you know, my, my idea, you know, what, one of the things I talk about in the book is that I think that the key forward, you know, to kind of like a better future actually is kind of within individuals. It's individuals sort of deciding that, maybe there's a little bit more to this life, you know, maybe just starting to kind of question this, this routine that they're in looking within, mm -hmm. looking for wisdom, looking for guidance from, uh, you know, anywhere, right. Anywhere that you can find a sound teaching, um, you know, self-knowledge is obviously so important, but I think just so much of it is just waking up and realizing that even though we're participating in this, like in this game, where, you know, you go to work and you make, you make your living and you do your passions on the side or whatever. It's, it's like realizing that that's not 
Like it's not it. We may be participating in it, but that's not, it's not the thing, right? Like the thing is like the relationship that you have with your family. The thing is the, the, the craft that you've put, you know, thousands of hours into developing or the skill it's, it's the little uh, moments that we spend with, with friends or family. I, I think that uh, we, we just get so caught up with that pursuit of, of money and possessions and power and security that we, we lose track of the things that we're doing it for. Um, totally. And I, that, that all just starts with, again, I, th- I feel like it starts with looking within and kind of asking yourself like what, what's really important because I think, <clears throat> You know, at the end of the day, there, there's so many ways you can word it, but like we, most people that they're so obsessed with, you know, money or having certain things and, you know, you, you give someone a million dollars and they say, thank you. And then you say, okay, now you, you have to die tomorrow, you know, or you can give me the money back. Like everyone that is not just totally, totally over their life is going to give the money back in a heartbeat because you know, you, you can't put a value on your life, right? Like any, anyone would give up a million dollars to live a, a longer life. Um, but you, unfortunately, just like, like two days. <laughs> yeah. But, but unfortunately, so many people, we, we get so focused on just like the grind and the accumulation in the game that we just like, you, you miss it. And you don't realize that until it's too late. Yeah, that's, we're just the way that we're living right now is in a, just a shitty game. <laughs> we've made yeah. it, we've made it, we've created a game for ourselves. And in some ways I think that we've created it to the degree that we have to distract ourselves from death. Um, you know, sure. the pursuit of money, the pursuit of these goods is, you know, a, a driving force that lets you like ignore this thing that's going to happen, you know, which, you know, it's hard to, you know, obviously the Stoics, you know, talk about, you know, thinking about how you're going to die, like kind of every day and how you're going to live today. Um, and I think that that is largely lost, especially in Western culture, um, most specifically in America. Um, you know, I think that I have a lot of qualms with, uh, religion, as I was saying. And, uh, you know, I think that specifically the monotheisms that, you know, believe in a, you know, vast unchanging afterlife has detached them from reality um, to such a degree that they, you know, they kind of do whatever they want as long as they follow this creed. They're they're good to go forever. Sure. And so they miss what's happening now. Yeah, I you know, I've had some conversations where, you know, I talked to guests about, like, the religion aspect a little bit too. And, um, you know, it's so common, especially, like, in the West, where you just have, like, you know, someone goes to church on Sunday and they, they're a Christian for like an hour. And then you look at the rest of their life and it, it's like, you're, you're not living at all what, what Jesus would have wanted you to live. Right. Like it's, it's literally like you just, you put on this fake smile and you introduce yourself to your, your brothers and sisters at church. And then, you know, you, you'd go out in traffic and cut somebody off cause they flipped you off or they, you flip someone off cause they cut you off. And, um, they're so like detached from any like meaningful sense of like spirituality or, or, you know, dedication to anything. Um, 
you know, so, something that I've been doing a lot more is like, I've just been trying to like ground myself at multiple times throughout the day. Um, you know, call it, call it prayer, call it whatever you want to call it. But, um, you know, not just in the morning or not just before I go to bed, but like, just, you know, like anytime I kind of catch myself being aware of myself, just, just taking a moment to kind of breathe and just to be thankful for the moment, to remember why I'm here. Um, you know, that, that's something that's been a lot for a lot more meaningful for me because it's, it's something that I do periodically through the day. And it, um, you know, it makes me think about, you know, not that I'm like, you know, preaching everybody to come out, like go out and be a Muslim or anything. But, you know, when you, when you look at Islam, you know, one of the, the beautiful things about their culture, one of the reasons why people are so connected and so into that is because of the, the, the dedicated prayer, you know, like every single day, multiple times per day, you're waking up, you're washing yourself, you're making yourself clean, you're praying. It's, you know, you're connecting yourself to something. And I think that, you know, that's part of why it's maybe so much more powerful than Christianity in the modern age too, because, you know, there, there's like, there's some meaning there that it, it you know, for, for better or for worse, right? Like they're, they're dedicated to something, right? And it, it shows every single day. It's not just on Sunday. It's fascinating to look at, you know, what the, you know, the act of traditional Muslim, um, you know, practice is actually doing, right? You're, they're actually following the arc of the sun. They're getting sun in their eyes, like first thing in the morning, last thing at night. And that's like, you know, essential for our circadian rhythm. And then they're using music and, you know, group stillness and group chant that are all these are all things that like we can measure like have you know huge benefits for the mind you know obviously there's a ton of you know insane dogma mixed in, into it but you know i think all religions especially the ones that are surviving have found you know a type of practice that is very beneficial um and you know what is what is prayer but attention what is meditation but putting our attention on something like we know these things can physically change the brain and can, you know, measurably make people happier and more connected. And, you know, there's, you know, there's so many good things about a lot of these things, but uh, there's also a lot of like baggage tied in with, you know, ancient obscure texts that lead people to, you know, go kill a gay guy or something and not let women have abortions, you know, just because they're taking certain things so literally, but, you know, like even like the confession within the Christian church, like that was, and they nailed that find, right. You know, like we're talking to psychologists now for an hour. You used to do that all the time. You know, you'd go confess and, you know, tell how, you know, bad you've been and what you're feeling. And, you know, these are all, things that we kind of stumbled on that are hugely beneficial and um yeah but as you said like yeah christianity you're in in the u.s you're a christian for a day um you know in older traditions of it you know you had to meditate and you had to chant and those are all things that are good for human psyche and we've kind of like streamlined it in like uh you know an instagram post or whatever right this is my life Right. Yeah. That, man, that's so much of life in general is like the Instagram post, a curation. Um, <clears throat> t tell me a little bit about, I mean, we're, we're talking about some of the habits of religion and things like that. Um, why, why don't you tell me a little bit, do you have a couple of daily habits or, you know, 
like any daily habits that are super important to you and your, your lifestyle? I, these days I meditate every morning for about 30 minutes, like as soon as I wake up. Um, and, uh, and then unfortunately I seem to have to do like an hour or a half an hour of core and push-ups and yoga and stuff just to like make my back feel better. Um, and to be able to do the things that I want to do. Um, so those are like, you know, more or less the mandatory staples of my life. Um, I rarely miss those. Um, but at the same time, I try to, you know, have these rules in place because they generally enhance life. But if you're doing them often enough, then you can skip them sometimes too. Right. So I don't want to be like too rigid with certain things. Um, I fat generally fast now till noon. Um, there's, there's a lot of research that's saying how good that is and it feels pretty good. And, uh, saves me money on breakfast. <laughs> and, uh, and then I, you know, love to get at least an hour of, of some kind of workout in, preferably, you know, more endurance based outside, um, up a mountain, um, ideally. And, uh, yeah, I'd say those are my kind of like three that I try to do every day. Um, and then I also kind of do those on the wind down as well into the night. So I meditate and I read and then I journal. Um, in an ideal world, I'd love to paint for three hours and write three hours every other day and, and, uh, you know, fully focus on whatever it is like I'm professionally pursuing, um, and just passionately pursuing, but obviously like jobs, work gets in between those and, and all that stuff. Um, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, all, all great habits. Uh, I've, those are, those are repeat habits. It's like everybody I talk to, you know, that, that is doing anything worth mention at all with their life is, is basically doing a lot of the same stuff. So, um, super important in just, you know, keeping yourself centered, focused. I mean, I think there's, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with like dopamine too. A, a lot of the things that you mentioned, you're, you're getting like good hits of dopamine. You're not getting these like shitty like dopamine spikes that leave you just feeling terrible um and especially i know i know you mentioned obviously with like the bipolar and stuff um and i have depression in my family i don't i've never sought out a diagnosis and i feel like i'm you know pretty well managed most of the time but you know there are definitely uh there are definitely times where like i can feel myself kind of coming off the rails if I'm not in a good routine and I feel like a, a good routine just makes everything feel really good. Um, and you know, when I had a crazy day like today at, at work and I kind of get off my routine, it just not, not that I'm just like, I like going to go crazy in one day, but, uh, you know, I, I can feel the difference when I miss the routine. So, um, with, with reading, uh, do, do you have any, like, uh, Two, like if you could pick out like two books, you know, life changing books for you that you'd recommend, what what would they be? Oh man, uh, I'd say probably Shogun, James Clavell. Um, great book, 15th century Japan, uh, kind of like Bushido and the Samurai Code, and just like fantastically written. Um, and uh, like and Anne Rand's Fountainhead. Um, that was those two books, like those hit me both in like high school and they're actually, my dad gave me Shogun and my mom gave me, uh, 
fountainhead and uh they were just like incredibly powerful and anytime i go back to them i'm like these are still amazing okay i actually so i haven't read fountainhead yet so that i'll definitely bump that up on my list but I, i've read a fair bit of ann rand um since since you brought her up uh she's she's pretty controversial in philosophy i i actually really like her philosophy um quite a bit and uh i have some theories i think that there's kind of like two main reasons that she was hated on so hard actually i'll say three the like three main reasons she was hated on so hard one she was a woman in a male-dominated field so they're just like i don't respect you i think that that could have been part of it i think two you know she wasn't an academic and she's going into essentially an academic dominated field so she wasn't part of the club um, so that's part of why they're just like, we don't respect you because you're not actually a philosopher. You're just like kind of a free thinker that's coming to these conclusions on your own. And, um, you know, third, I think that, you know, possibly it could have just been that, you know, the, the move in sort of like academia at that time seemed to be a little bit more, um, you know, I guess like towards like the ideas that, you know, perhaps like socialism should be introduced and things like that, like, and I think that, you know, her background and where she came from and just sort of being very opposed to that would have made people a little bit uh, reluctant to, I guess, accept what she was saying. So I don't know. I, I just ran off on my thing. But what, what do you think about her? What are your thoughts? Yeah, uh, she's definitely a fascinating character. Um, you know, tons of like, uh, surprisingly, philosophy. A, a lot of my classmates were women and they just hated her. Uh, and I was like, well, have you ever read her? <laughs> and, you know, a lot of these, you know, just the way that our school systems are going are, you know, just the same problem with I, that I see in religions. There's like a dogma surrounding certain ideas. And it's like, have you ever breached it? Have you informed yourself on this? Have you, um, you know, and I think she's, she obviously had some really, she was really passionate about her ideas and really strong on them. Um, you know, I think that, you know, Atlas Shrugged is her most popular book. I think that is generally a terrible book. Um, you know, it has, you know, a good, uh, you know, panicked interpretation of more or less what uh, mediocrity and, you know, socialism will do, um, which, you know, she's somewhat correct in that regard. But, you know, humans will always pursue excellence, I believe. And, um you know, in some ways, I think socialist structures allow that to happen more than, you know, certain forms of capitalism. I think that a fusion between most things is probably more beneficial. Um, but yeah, the reason I like Fountainhead so much is um, it wasn't quite as extreme and it went into, you know, the passion and patience of a character following, like, their passion and and having the patience to you know it's about an architect that wants to design houses a certain way and um you know some people think he's you know the greatest thing that's ever lived but most people don't understand his work so you know sometimes he has to go back to the granite quarry and you know cut blocks out of the granite and not design houses and um just the whole way that she writes that and like the internal drive to to follow your passions and and stuff like that is um, a lot of why I like found that so much, which is obviously in Alice Shrugged and a lot of her writing as well. Um, 
you know, that driving force behind I can't remember the character who was building the, the rails and John Galt and obviously all these things. But um, yeah, most of the time I feel like, yeah, you, 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 sorry. Uh, you're, you're good. No, I was going to say, like, yeah, I mean, her, I, I haven't read um, much of her uh, her fiction. You know, I've, I've mostly read her philosophy, but definitely, I mean, that's, um, yeah, that's what she's known for, right? It's a, like those ideas of, like, very rugged individualism and, you know, the, the fact that, uh, you know, she has one of her, one of her like, books is uh, The Virtue of Selfishness and just this idea that <clears throat> we sort of have to, like, be selfish and take care of ourselves in a way, because if we don't, then, you know, we're, we're really doing a disservice to the, uh, to the world. And then, I mean, that, that takes me back to like ancient Greece and, you know, Arate and, you know, the, the fact that, you know, we're talking about the Olympics, like the athletes are put on display, right. Because they, they give people an example of what's possible for someone, right? Like this is human excellence that you can see that you can actually watch. And, uh, you know, it's, it's inspiring. And when you have a society full of people who are trying to be excellent, uh, you know, you're, you're going to have an excellent society, right? Like when, um, uh, but as, as you said, right. Um, ancient Greece was not this, like, it, it also wasn't this, like, you know, capitalist utopia, right? Like, you know, if you were needed to do something for the state, it, there was no question about it. Like you, you were going to do what the state wanted you to do. And there were also a lot of programs as far as like, you know, taking care of people and trying to create equalities in society. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that it, it's definitely important to have a fusion just as you mentioned too. I think that it's all about balance in life. Yeah. Things are exactly. Yeah. I think things are never black and white. Um, there's always shades of gray and surprise, surprise. There's also color. So, you know, you know, I look at, uh, for sure. I agree with a lot of, you know, I, as I've said, a lot of what Anne Rand had thinking and, um, uh, you know, I, and a lot of the capitalist ideals, but, you know, so much of what we think about capitalism, especially in this country, is this, you know, end all be all creation of societal structure, but we don't like look into, you know, the poisons that it is, you know, created with, um, you know, when it comes down to it, it's not a free market society. Um, you know, huge companies squash smaller companies and huge ideas destroyed or huge corporations destroy, you know, good ideas before they have a chance to you know, gain access to the public. So, I mean, it's just, it's just not actual capitalism, which is same with communism. You know, a lot of the, you know, the, the biggest failings of communism, in my opinion, are actually capitalist ideals. They're people taking more while not allowing, you know, they say everybody gets paid the same, but then there's, you know, higher ups that are, you know, living in castles and, um, both have huge problems, you know, so I think that they're, we're basically, you know, more that I look at kind of like Nordic countries and like Swiss countries, it's, it's a fusion of these things. It's a capitalist market with, you know, social amenities that are essential, you know, like 
there's a there's a catch point in a lot of these societies that you know the reason that we're all here is because we relied on each other and we all help each other and you know rugged individualism in the american view a lot of the time you know assumes that somebody came from nothing and you know created something like on their own but it's like dude did you plant and eat your food every day no then you relied on thousands and thousands of people to get you food every day and you know you use these road systems to transport your product that we built with our combined effort and um you know i think that's a, a big reason why there's a lot of like growing depression and anxiety in our in our culture is in american culture specifically is there's not as much of a catch point um you know with you know healthcare and you know even like the cost of like retiring and dying is like my grandfather just died and it was i could not believe how much it was costing just to get him to death you know and america is like the only country that's like you're on your own you know you can buy insurance they're all overpriced you know but there's an infinite list of uh things i think that we we could be doing better it's uh <clears throat> sometimes it's like uh sometimes i just try to do my best to just kind of like live you know focus on your own little bubble um but it's it's tough because then nothing nothing ever really changes right um you know i but i mean the the selfishness aspect of you know doing the things to take care of yourself you know that's the only way you can help take care of more people right if you're not taking care of yourself you're not you know getting your needs met then if you're trying to help somebody you're extending yourself and you're going to be of no help basically so that you know that rugged individualism is you know is essential you got to take care of yourself so then you can help take care of others right and it's just like we said man it, it's it's always balance it's it's always finding that uh you know that that spot the the uh the golden the golden median the golden middle right as aristotle would say right so the the middle path. Um, I, I wanted to ask you too. I know you mentioned like your dad um, earlier on. Do do you have any like specific heroes that you looked up to when you were growing up, or you know just just in general, any any heroes in life? Yeah, for sure, lots of them. Um... Yeah, I, I mentioned earlier that uh, I looked around and didn't see any superheroes. And that was until I uh, discovered Muhammad Ali. Um, I think that he was, you know, kind of the epitome of being a superhero. He uh, was the greatest at his sport and went through a ton of adversity. And he used his voice and, you know, presence to fight against systems that he perceived as broken. Um, and that, that just, you just lived an incredible life. It seems like, uh, Aristotle, definitely one of them, uh, Da Vinci, you know, that kind of like polymath factor of, you know, painting and, you know, just being able to do a lot of things at once. Um, and, 
yeah, I mean, and the reason that I like to do so many things is it keeps the game going, basically. You know, if you're only good at one thing, then as soon as whatever the ski race is over, then the game is over. Um, and if you get good at a lot of other games, then, you know, the day is filled with, with play. Um, and then definitely my parents, dad and mom are, you know, huge, huge factors of obviously they're why I'm here, but, uh, you know, the way that they live is also, uh, inspiring. Okay. Yeah. The, the parents is like a, is a big one. I, I, I get a lot of, uh, you know, mom, mom and dad makes, makes sense. It's, it's not what I anticipated when I, when I started the show and I was asking the question, I was like thinking it was going to be a ton of like, you know, like Muhammad Ali, Steve jobs, like, um, it's like by far that the number one so far is just my parents, you know, dad, mom, my kid, my brother. Um, we, I think we don't put enough emphasis on family in the States in, in general. I think we, we don't, we don't realize how important family is. We're, we're not as connected, you know, as, as some of the past generations would have been. Totally. I think that, uh, you know, there's so much space in the U.S. that we started, you know, each building our own castle. And uh, that's, I think that we'll find that that is robbing us of uh, so much of family interaction. That's, you know, there's so much learning to be done, like when you're living with your grandpa and your parents and, you know, even your kids um, and having like a whole family, like moving and meshing together and, you know, seeing the generation gaps of belief and, and also like what wisdom is so relevant and all that stuff. And I think that a lot of other cultures are, you know, pretty good at keeping that around, you know, a lot of Asian cultures are huge on the family component and in a lot of Europe, you know, the space was so small that families just end up living together and the house gets passed from generation to generation, uh, like the whole living family lives in more or less the same house. Yeah. And the, um, so the last question I wanted to ask you, I always, I always like to ask this one too. Um, you know, if, if you could go back in time, you know, talk, talk to a teenage version of yourself, uh, what, what piece of advice, advice would you give to yourself if you could go back? Um, I guess I give myself a, a couple pieces of advice, probably as much as I could, but I guess I'll keep it, keep it limited. Um, I'd say a huge one for me, obviously talking about, you know, just wearing myself to the bone would be rest, um, like rest, just gotta rest. Um, the harder you work, the harder you have to rest and those have to be, you know, in balance basically. And then I would say that, uh, politics are in everything and uh the consequences are astronomical sometimes um understanding that the people you know and and the uh, reputation you build and stuff you know can can glide you through life or put up huge barriers and that's something that i you know learned kind of too late is that you know people are sensitive and uh they take offense and if they're people above you, then they're going to make your life very hard. Um, even in things that seem as straightforward as who got the fastest time on a race course. Um, 
but I mean, it's really all things, you know, and uh, yeah, I'd say that that'd be about it. Yeah. Yeah, or just at least understand the game. Yeah, learn the rules before you break the rules. Sure. All right, Wiley, um, I had a really great time talking to you tonight. Um, I don't know if you have any, you know, like, I don't know if you're trying to raise money for training or anything like that. You got anything you want to, um, you know, shout out, website, you know, your your Instagram page, anything like that? Yeah, I guess uh, I'll be fundraising in the fall. Um, I usually put on an event in, uh, in Aspen. Uh, obviously, a lot of people listening won't be able to make that, but um, I'll create a couple links um, on Instagram and stuff like that for people to donate if they're interested in doing that. So I guess follow me on Instagram, WC Maple. Um, that's where I push out, I guess, the majority of my life content. Um, and uh, yeah. Awesome. Well, again, th thanks for coming on. Great talking to you. And man, I, I wish you all the best coming back from these injuries. Um, I, I, I truly mean it, man. I, I love seeing people go out there and do something that, you know, maybe wasn't possible a couple of years ago when the, when the spine was fused up. So I, I really do wish you the very best out there in your training. So. Sounds good. And uh, I'd love to read your book. Um, so uh, give me a copy of that. Sounds good. All right. Cheers. Good times. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Peace. Yeah, I'll get you set up, man. I'll get you set up. All right. Appreciate you coming on. Yep. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Renaissance Wisdom Podcast, and hopefully you learned at least one lesson on today's episode. Our mission here is to uncover practical wisdom to create a better way of living for our audience. If you enjoyed this episode, please help us by leaving the show a review on your podcast platform of choice and by giving it a share on social media. This really helps us to grow our audience and to continue to add more episodes. If you are interested in learning more, please check out our website at renaissance-wisdom.com or check out the book that started it all, Renaissance Wisdom, How to Flourish in the Modern Day, now on Amazon. Thank you again, and may wisdom be your guide.